Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com slash listener and get started. How would you describe your beat? What kinds of stories do you do? I would say I'm on the science and technology beat. I love stories about scientists who uh, must confront the limits of their own science or apply their science to themselves. Before Dan Engber became a senior editor at The Atlantic, he himself was trying to become a neuroscientist. I spent the most time studying motor control, the development of motor control in young children. His research was focused on kids' brains. How exactly do kids make their bodies move? And a really big an important concept is that of signal and noise. When you decide to move your arm, your brain will send out a command in the form of electrical signals, like literally traveling down the arm to the muscle. For little kids who are just learning to move, there's a lot of noise that gets in the way. So it's not like, hey, move your arm. It's like, hey, move your arm. Exactly. He eventually left that field. But then, about a year ago, he got introduced to a scientist whose life had just been turned upside down and whose world now revolved around finding the signal in the noise or helping his daughter to do so. Hello? How's it going? Good. How are you? Doing okay. The first time I talked to James Solzer was in spring of 2021. Hello? Yeah, you kind of dropped off there. What, you, you there now? Yeah. I'd be sitting at my desk in my apartment in Brooklyn. James would be in his home office, which is a converted walk-in closet. This, is, this seems to be working. Okay, so, yeah, uh, how have you been? James Solzer has always been obsessed with making things. I only like building things as long as there is some kind of function or something I could see. In high school, I did woodshop. So I, you know, created a lot of furniture that was in my parents' house, you know, a coffee table or... Like you wouldn't just make any coffee table. It was like a stupid coffee table you put in a corner. It was a nice coffee table. It had to serve a purpose. To me, it was the first time I could make something that was useful. And I loved that feeling. James turned that feeling into a career. He went to engineering school and ended up using his skills to build machines that would help people, like stroke patients, recover from serious brain injuries. He became a rehab engineer. I think James came into this truly an optimistic 
engineer, you know, this builder's mentality of... I see a problem. I think that technology can fix it. Like an all-American, we can build our way through it mentality that I think is, is, is common among engineers and, and applied scientists. Here at the University of Texas, we have the unique ability to develop robotic and engineering tools to understand the neural and biomechanical causes of an impairment. This is James speaking in a promotional video from 2014. What we do is we take neuroscientific knowledge and we combine it with engineering concepts to develop better, smarter methods. One of the tools we're developing... In his early days as a rehab engineer, James was focused on developing new and ambitious devices. Things like robotic limbs and knee exoskeletons. You could relieve a whole array of brain injuries, he thought, if you just build the right machine. This is going to open up a whole new range of exciting clinical options in the future. He hadn't actually seen the results he hoped for, yet. But then something happened that shook his faith in the whole project. In addition to being a rehab engineer, James is a dad. He and his wife, Lindsay, who's also a scientist, have three kids. Today, Noah is eight years old, Reed is two years old, and Livy, short for Liviana, is five. This is a story about Livy. James and Lindsay showed me a bunch of videos of her. And in almost every video, she's playing some make-believe game or performing some song and dance of her own creation at very high volume. Where am I going? Who is the doctor? Me! I'm a doctor She was whip smart. I mean, she was she was really hard to deal with. You know, she, she liked to, to get in all sorts of trouble just to piss me off, I could tell. She was a very theatrical and mischievous kid. So, for example, she walked into the kitchen where Lindsay was doing dishes and um, Livy's closing her eyes, just walking through the kitchen, closing her eyes, thinking that she was invisible. (laughs) And then she opens up the back door, walks out the porch, right? And Lindsay's thinking she's just playing outside by herself. And so five minutes later, she didn't hear anything. She walks outside and Livy's all the way at the end of the street trying to go to the playground or something. I don't know what she was doing. And then one day in May of 2020. James was in his home office. I I was sitting right where I am now grading papers. This was the early days of the pandemic lockdown. And um, it was a completely still day. It was spring in Austin, Texas, where they live. Irises in the backyard were blooming. Livy was outside in the backyard playing with her brothers. Livy was three years old at the time. And Livy said, now it's time for a song. And at that moment, a tree branch 30 feet up cracked and broke and fell and landed and hit her in the head. Then I heard the screaming. And I I looked outside to the bathroom window and I saw her uh, splay down on the grass. And uh, that's when, obviously, my heart dropped. That's when it started. This week, Atlantic writer Dan Engber follows the Solzer family in the aftermath of their daughter's accident. 
For years, James Solzer had been building devices that might hypothetically help some patients someday. Now, he was positioned to help the most important patient of his life. The very first conversation I had with James and Lindsay, there was something James said in that call about how the accident had just created this cloud of noise. Like what had happened to his family was just an explosion of static, like a really loud that he couldn't turn off, but that maybe there'd be some way of tuning the dial so that he could find some kind of message in it. Rehab engineer James Solzer looks for a signal in the noise and tries to build his way out of a tragedy. This is The Experiment, a show about our unfinished country. James was sitting in his home office, and he heard screaming outside. And so he ran to a window, and he saw Livy was lying in a heap on the grass. Her eyes were fluttering a little bit back. She was clearly unconscious. There was no blood or anything. So they called an ambulance. And the ambulance came pretty quickly. And I was overhearing the conversation between the EMTs. And that's when they said she had a blown right pupil. But I don't. I didn't know what that meant. A blown pupil means your pupil is in its dilated state. It's the brain pushing up against the inside of the skull and getting squished. And then you start to see damage across the entire brain. I was thinking that she'd wake up or like, you know, just like a boxer who got knocked out. There was no blood anywhere. You know, I didn't think it couldn't have been that bad. So they got to the hospital. They went right ahead and did surgery, which involved basically cutting a rectangular patch of bone out of Livy's skull, you know, to create like a a vent so that some of that swelling has somewhere to go. I was a a pile of goo at that point. I I was non-functional. After the surgery, Livy was in a coma. She was in a vegetative state. So the extent of her injury was, you know, still unknown. Prognosis is always our question. You know, how long is this going to last? When is she going to get better? And this neurologist suggested that From what I remember, he said that she'll have some walking issues and maybe problems concentrating on math problems, something like that. That's what I remember. Like, you know, she was going to recover to, what, 90% of what she used to be, something like that. So Livy was completely unresponsive for two weeks. She emerged from her coma, but only to a very limited extent. It wasn't like in the movies where... Suddenly, the patient wakes up. We thought once she gets out of the coma, she would be responding to external stimuli, and she wasn't at all. It was completely, the lights are on, but nobody's home. No vocalization, no nothing. And that is when James and Lindsay realized this is far worse than we understood. Like, she should have been woken up by now, right? She should be interacting. This was not just a question of like, oh, she's going to have to learn to walk again. This was a question of like, can we communicate with her? At what 
point did you start to think, okay, what can I do as, you know, an engineer? Maybe the second day in the hospital, I started reaching out to people in, in pediatric rehab that I knew. He's thinking, what can I build? What can I do? How can I apply my knowledge and expertise to make her recovery better? When Livy was in the hospital right at the beginning, one of the things you have to be careful about is if someone's just motionless in bed for a long time, their joints can kind of seize up. We're spending 45 minutes stretching your joints like this over and over and over again. Yeah, we're going to have to automate this somehow. But of course, I'm very far from my lab. It could wind up hurting her. So I abandoned the idea. Then he started building other devices. We tried EMG biofeedback and then um, presented his feedback with the volume getting higher or lower to her favorite songs. This was a game I wanted to make her to encourage active decision making. He and his students rigged up like a toy car so that she could either press a button to make the car go or she could twist a knob. There was another project where I want to measure her swallowing. She has a really tiny throat, so I can't see her swallow very well. I threw everything at the wall, and I'm still continuing to throw everything at the wall. I was so helpless. I scrapped at anything I could to feel like I was helping her. Doing that as best he could became like a moral and parental imperative, but also it was, in a sense, rehabilitative for him as well. It was therapeutic for him. It was a way that he could participate in the recovery. It's really easy as a scientist to poo-poo everything and be skeptical, right? No one wants to feel like they got the wool pulled over their eyes. But as a parent, you need to have some optimism and you need to have leaps of faith. So it's a completely different mindset. I went into this to to build devices to help people, but I never considered that building devices might not be the answer. That's after the break. Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com slash listener and get started. I'm Julie Longoria. This is The Experiment. And Atlantic editor Dan Engber has spent months talking on the phone with rehab engineer James Solzer as he tinkers away, trying to build devices to help his daughter Libby regain brain function. Hey, how are you, James? Doing okay. My cool new office. That's a new. At this point, it had been about a year since Livy's injury. You know, certain flowers bloom at this time. Irises. The per- we have purple irises in our backyard that they, they just bloomed a couple weeks ago, and uh, that, so it just reminded me of the accident. After we already, you know, had many conversations one on one, it sort of occurred to both of us. While you're on here, do you want to meet her over the Zoom? or do you James could introduce me to Livy. Uh, I'd be happy to meet her now, yeah. 
Okay. I know. He, he wants to, yeah, I figured it's a good time. James carried the laptop through his house, and Livy was with one of her therapists doing exercises. And are we doing feeding right now? Or do you... Yeah, we're doing feeding, and we're actually problem <laughs> Say hi, Livy. Can you wave hi? Good job. Hi, Livy. Hi. Can is the volume's really low? One of the things that struck me right away was how instantly she made eye contact with me in the screen. Okay. Okay. Now she now she could hear you a little better. Nice to meet you. Hi. Can you smile? There you go. That's good. This is speech therapy, so I don't know if you could see the... James remembered being told in the hospital that Livy would regain most of the function she'd lost, that she might have a little bit of trouble walking and maybe some difficulty concentrating on math problems. Well, we're a year now, and she, she's not looking great. But, uh, you know, she's getting better, don't get me wrong, but um, she has what's called the disorder of consciousness. You know, um, I asked her this morning to touch her head. Can you touch your head, Livy? And she just looks at me and smiles and laughs. So, I mean, clearly she's not understanding what's going on in that question. But, you know, a, a, a minute later, I ask her, hey, Livy, can you touch your nose? And she reaches up and touches her nose. And then can you touch your ear? She re- you know what I mean? Does she um, have a consistent and clear way of signaling yes and no? Uh, we're working on yes right now. Um if she doesn't want food, like if we offer her food and she doesn't want it, she'll maybe pull away. Mm-hmm. But that's just for food. That's not no in, in a broader sense. Uh, for yes, we that's been like one of the main developments in the last few weeks is that she gets a like that when, when she wants something. So it's not yes per se, but it's 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 a you can kind of tell she wants it. So it, it's not like she's this fully conscious person trapped in an impaired body. Right. You could tell the difference between those two. I always equate it to like a football game. Like we want to be within field goal range of, of function. So if we're like, you know, 70, 75 percent recovery, but it, you know, right now, 30, 40 percent, 50 percent, like she's still going to be dependent on assistance her entire life. It was clear that her progress had not been as thorough or rapid as James or anyone had hoped. So at that point, James felt frustrated that he tried so many different things and none of them were really working we felt we've done everything we can for her why why isn't she beating the odds why why is it even worse do you do you know she's not beating the odds we don't know what the freaking odds are we i mean no we don't know that's the thing it's just it was this expectation we had after that meeting with the neurologist they offer a prognosis but even still they're they're useless prognoses are useless all of these things that he was trying were sort of based on these like ambitious ideas of how you could use high technology to speed along recovery. And now that he was dealing with it, now that his family was dealing with, with these devices in a really practical way, he saw how flawed they were. You know, all the time these ideas like in theory sound great. And then in practice, you realize there's just so many reasons it doesn't work. If you're not thinking about, does this fit into the 45-minute slot that Livy has on Thursdays between this appointment and that appointment, then 
you might as well have not built the robot at all. I can't adapt, like, I can't expect Livy to adapt to anything or, or, or try and move a little bit to make it work. It has to work perfectly. In the old days, when he was just, you know, a scientist in his cool robotics lab at UT, you could spend all day there and just build the most complicated, intricate, theoretically effective robots ever. I, nothing I've done that I've built do I feel has directly helped people. It's more um, when I stopped building things then I found more valuable results. It's, you know, a collision between this idealized version of rehab engineering that he had had and his colleagues had had and, you know, the lived reality of working with someone with a severe brain injury who's trying to get better. I don't have any solutions on what works and what doesn't work. And that's embarrassing to me. That's that's humiliating. Like, I... I this is what I do. How do I not how do I not have a good answer on what works and what doesn't? I definitely got the sense that for James, having so much scientific knowledge and sophistication could end up feeling like a curse. Like I think that kind of knowledge was paralyzing. I'm trying to be willing to accept that everything I've learned and espoused for so many years may be wrong. Like one of my biggest fears is that this happened for no reason, and there's nothing good that comes out of this. It's like all that static he'd been hearing from the start had nothing inside. There was no signal in the noise. It's like, we've been through this hell, and it still sucks. That's not a story. That's not something people want to watch. This is just a black hole of suck. When it's your daughter and you had these visions of her doing certain things and, you know, going to prom. I, I could care less about prom, but, you know, those classic... is <laughs> just an idea of something that you do with a daughter and it feels like it's just this constant sense of loss, which eliminates our ability to be thankful for, for what we have. And what we have right now, I mean... She loves to give kisses. I mean, she can't, she can't you know do uh, fish faces. She, she, she just opens her mouth and, and thick eyed tongue yeah, <laughs> like that. It's really adorable, you know, and it, it's just so far off from where she was. It's, it, and it's, it's so hard to appreciate that. It started to occur to me that uh, she's like, it, it was much easier to accept the situation if I thought of it as that she died and that there's this new new child here. It, it, it felt like, it, almost, it was like a release. It, it's weird. It's like I have two daughters in a way, one, one that passed away and, and now this one. I want to just catch up and find out what's been going on since it's been a long time since we've talked. But then there are some other So I actually talked to James uh, again a few weeks ago. It's been about a year since we first started talking and now about almost two years since Livy's accident. How is Livy doing? So she's gotten, uh, she's continuing to improve, uh, still slow and steady. Um, She can sit up by herself for, I don't know, five, ten minutes 
she ate pizza the other day. I, I cut it up real small. Uh, so she she's chewing food too, which is a real big step for her. She walked in her trainer um, almost a mile by herself. Uh, so, you know, stopping a little bit here and there, but, you know, when she first started, she, you know, couldn't walk five meters and now she's, she's going a large distance. I think in general, it's hard to find anyone who's really supportive of, of low tech solutions that are boring, but might be useful and practical. Libby has a tablet, like an iPad that she uses as a communication device. You know, she could hit the button eat and then she can go to food and then she goes to and there's a button for Asian food and then she goes to hummus. Uh-huh. Right. So she goes through three screens to get the hummus and she loves to eat hummus. She said her first word, uh, which is mama. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's clearly meaningful. Like, you know, she says it you know, when she sees her mom, she goes, you know, mama, mama. And uh, what was that like um, for you and Lindsay when I mean, when you use the phrase, she said her first word, of course, it makes me think of the language of, you know, having a a, a baby in the house. You know, uh, well, it, it made me feel really good to hear it. You know, even though it's the, the first word and she hasn't done it before, it, 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 I mean, it's not like I think that she's going to f- have a full vocabulary anytime in the future. You know, whatever she gains, we're happy to see that gain. But with, with the baby, you, you kind of look towards the future and you have these expectations for where you want the baby to be. And, you know, you, you have this this timeline you're expecting. And it, with her, we just take what we can get. You know, I feel like I've accepted the situation and, um, you know, I mean, I'm and I, I feel a lot happier. So I, I'm starting to feel a little bit more like a normal person, although our life is anything but. I still don't like when people say everything happens for a reason to think that my daughter had her life changed like this. Um, th- that's that's still hard for me to accept. So James and his wife, Lindsay, ended up writing a paper, an academic paper, about uh, Livy's injury and their work with her to help her recover. And the paper really looks at the, you know, the gap between the work that's done in the lab and designing these devices and how they can or, or will be used in a real-life situation. And they started getting letters back after the paper was published. And one of them had a good point like you know the meaning in life isn't you know it's just to survive you just that's the point and it's not about trying to figure out why something happened just live This episode of The Experiment was produced by me, Peter Bresnan, with help from Julia Longoria and Alyssa Eads. Editing by Emily Botin, and reporting by Dan Engber. You can read Dan Engber's full article, A Peer-Reviewed Portrait of Suffering, on our website, www.theatlantic.com experiment. Fact-checking by Yvonne Rolshausen. Sound design by Joe Plord. 
Music by Tasty Morsels. Our team also includes Gabrielle Berbet, Jenny Lawton, Tracy Hunt, Sara Kari, Salman Ahad Khan, and Natalia Ramirez. Also, the experiment is looking for an intern. Students and recent grads are encouraged to apply for our paid summer internship. We're accepting applications through March 25th. You can find out more on this episode's page at www.theatlantic.com experiment. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Experiment is a co-production of The Atlantic and WNYC Studios. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com listener and get started.